Thank you. I found a clip. Tonight we're talking about the, the witness of the woman at the well, and I, I found this wonderful clip from The Chosen, and, and Olivia is singing a song that she had written along with that and how that moved her, and at the end you'll see the singer being baptized. heard a story from the Bible When I was just a little girl About a broken hearted woman Who met the Savior of the world Thought it was just another story One that the preacher made Parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Staring at that empty bottle I swear I caught a glimpse of him He met me right there at the bottom And turned that wine to living water And taught me how to I've made mistakes. Too many. Where am I supposed to go when I need God? God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from. It's no longer just a story when I read it Cause I've seen it for myself 
yourself and I believe it. I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. Cause tonight I feel just like the woman of the world. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on started the series, uh, Can I Get a Witness? One of the things that I talked about was that I'd give you a question um, with each message so that you would be able to write out and tell your story. Well, I forgot that the first two times. <laughs> Lisa made sure to remind me. And so, if you go to the next slide, I wrote these, uh, the first three questions down. And what they are meant to do is by just answering these three questions, it'll help you capture your story. We talk about our witness or our testimony. When we talk about what was my life like before Christ and just answer that question. And then how did I become a Christian? And then you just answer that question. And how did Jesus change my life? And you answer that question. And by just doing that, then you have this small couple paragraphs and with, those, with that small couple paragraphs, if somebody asks you about your story, you can just relate it to them. Or maybe you can just text it to a friend or uh, to somebody else. Um, but I wanted to give that to you. What was my life like before Christ? How did I become a Christian? And how has Jesus changed my life? And we'll get that back up if you haven't captured it. But this evening I want to talk about, is it well with my soul? Um, there's a lot of firsts with this passage. If you turn to John chapter 4, and we're just going to systematically just, just drive right through this, this passage. We won't get all 42 verses, but we're going to get most of them. When I look at this passage and the significance of, of it, the Gospel of John, it's interesting, most of the time, you know, I'd always heard when someone asked you know, I, I just became a Christian or I'm, I'm, you know, searching and spiritually and stuff like that. You know, where do I start in the Bible? And, and I was always told John. And so when I went through John and I started comparing the Gospel of John from Matthew and Mark and Luke, what I noticed was the Gospel of John reveals more about Jesus as the Son of God than any of the other Gospels. Mark touches more on miracles Luke is very chronological, but John reveals things about Jesus. And in this story, the reason it's so significant with this story, we're going to get to meet the first missionary ever that Jesus sent out. It was the woman at the well. 
And in this dialogue that Jesus has with the woman at the well, it's the longest dialogue that's captured in Scripture between Jesus and somebody else. It's the longest conversation that they thought was so important to capture this and what it has. And we're going to look at this evening how Jesus, the, the master, and how he approached somebody who was searching and how we as witnesses, when we, when we have a conversation with somebody, how, you know, what should I do, what should I don't do when I interact with somebody? We're going to look at some of those things this evening. But to give you some background, in verse 4 it says, he had to go through Samaria. And it wasn't because they got lost and the GPS said you need to take this, this is the shortest route, which it was the shortest route to get to where he was going. But it was because he was led by the Spirit. Every time in Scripture, when Jesus ends up doing something, when you read around the activity of something going on, he was led into the desert. He's being led here into a conversation with somebody. That's why I handed out those goofy lead fishing lures, so that you would feel lead when you touched your pocket. And everybody thought that was something funny. But it, um, Gwen sent me a, a picture of a quote today, today, which I thought was really interesting, and, and I really loved it. And it said that we value the book that the disciples didn't have more than the spirit that they did have. I never really thought about that. But when we talk about being led, we are led into conversations. We are led into relationships. We are led to be led in, in, in every decision that we make. But let's go back a thousand years. It's a thousand years before this event. And a thousand years, about 931, Solomon dies. King Solomon dies. And he's got two boys that can't get along. And so they divide up his kingdom. They want as much as they can get. So all of a sudden, the kingdom, we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, it was called Judah. Now, 200 years passed from there. It's about 722. And then you can read in 1 Kings 16, and chapter 17, and then go to 2 Kings chapter 17, and you'll see all the events of what happened during this time leading up to where we're at. What happened was, about 200 years after the boys split up the kingdom, there comes along the Assyrians. And the Assyrians take over, and they invade the northern kingdom of Israel. And when they invaded, they destroyed everything. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed everything in its path. And what happened was, they set up all these other uh, temples and gods to worship and they started to intermarry over time. And so the Jews in the southern kingdom looked at those who are from the northern kingdom as less than, a lot less than. Because the Samaritans, it was interesting, when the, when the Syrian king came in and took over, he renamed the area and renamed the capital. Renamed the capital Samaria, but then later on, it, it, it kind of announces that Samaria was a region, not just a city, but a region in an area. So the people up north were pretty upset. After the fact, don't you think the Ukrainians are going to be pretty upset when they look back about Russia invading them and taking, trying to take over? 
That's what happened here. The Assyrians go up. They invade their country. They destroy everything in its path and take over. And whoever's left just has to live with it. And as time goes, their families are scattered. There's no one there. They need to survive. They start intermarrying. And then Samaritans take place. Here's a woman that we meet as an outcast. She's economically marginalized. She's a woman. There were gender issues. Women were so low on the totem pole, they couldn't own property. They couldn't testify in a court of law. They couldn't file for a divorce, and that's going to mean something when we look at the five husbands that she had. A husband could divorce a wife if she burnt the beans. She's gone. If she can't have children, she's gone. If she's not a good housekeeper, if she can't keep the weeds out of the field and grow crops right and take care of the animals, she's gone. It was that easy. And we see her as an outcast. We see her as a Samaritan. There were racial hatred here. When we talk about tribalism, I didn't realize how, um, I don't even know how to just say this, how um, worked up people can get about the tribe that they're from. But in 2008, in Kenya, there was an election. A Muslim was running against a Christian. And what happened was the Muslims hired people to go in and take machetes and kill people and start fires and all this violence so they couldn't get to the polls. And what was interesting was because people are so poor, there were some Christians working for the Muslims attacking other Christians just because they weren't from the same tribe. It was bizarre. When I got there in 2008, there were so many people displaced. All they had was these cities of white tents. And that's when I got involved in, in my first ever um, starting adopting out uh, orphans, got in the orphan business, because one of the churches that we had up north, for some reason our pastor wasn't there that day. He couldn't make it there. But they came in and they chain-locked the doors. For some reason they let the children go. But they chain-locked the doors and burnt the church down and all the adults in it. And by the time I got there, there was 54 children there crying with everything else that was going on. I'm supposed to take care of it. But there's something to this racial hatred and the violence. So when Jesus interacts, there's no way a Jew's going to step in Samaria. If they'd used, in that video we looked at, if they were to use some type of vessel or utensil from a Samaritan, then the Jew would be unclean. And also when I look at this story, I I see the hypocrisy of the whole thing is where the disciples are so upset that he's talking to a woman and a Samaritan, but the disciples are so hungry, they went into a Samaritan village to get something to eat. Isn't that hilarious? You go do ministry, I got to go to McDonald's and I'll be back. But what I want you to see today is even though we have all these categories today, we have gender and race and ethnicity and, and, and LGBT and all these different categories. When Jesus was at Samaria, he didn't see race. He didn't see gender of a woman. He saw a human being. And that's hard to do sometimes. The disciples didn't even get it. They were upset at what Jesus was doing. 
But as we look at, if we go to the next slide, what I want you to see, we're going to look at four movements that we see taking place in the story. The first movement is there's this awakening that she has to the thirst that's inside her. And then we're going to look at and see that, that what the root cause to this thirst. What causes people to hunger and thirst for God? And we're going to see what that is in this story and how it takes place in our life. And then at some point in time, we see that she's incredibly satisfied. Her thirst is satisfied, and she runs and leaves and goes to the village to share her joy. And those are the things that we're going to look at. But I want to start in verse 4, if you'll follow along. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sikhar. Now, Sikhar still exists today. Now, so it's interesting. You can go and find Jacob's well. It's still there. It's 200 feet deep. It was made out of rock. Do you know where it's located? Maybe this will help you understand the division and the racism that's going on. Do you know where Jacob's well is sitting today, where it's always set? On the Western Bank in Palestine. That's where it is. Jews don't go there. Palestinians are there. We see and hear the violence all the time on on TV. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon the Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. And he was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to do anything with Samaritans. And she says to Jesus, she starts this conversation out, on how she wants it to go. She says, you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan, and a woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Do you ever notice when you have conversations with people, they always like to set the agenda in the topics and the categories they want to talk about? You ever notice that? And it seems like the two categories that everybody wants to talk about today is race and gender, and it's in every conversation. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't bite on this. He, he, he kind of sidesteps, if you will. But what he does is he wants to go deeper in the conversation. And let me tell you why Jesus doesn't deal with race. Because race is a man-made thing. It's not a God-made thing. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile or female or male or slave. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There is none of this stuff that we hear all the time, and this is free. So this wasn't part of the sermon, but this is free. So, you know, you can give more at the offering plate because this is free. You got a little extra tidbit. Here's the free part. There's no such thing as one race being evolved more than another race. And, And I'll share something with you because you probably forgot your history, but you can go back and look it up. Evolution is unconstitutional. Do you know why? Because in the second paragraph in the Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, it says we were created equal. It doesn't say that we evolved equal, does it? You want to have some fun? Lay that on your history teacher at school. That's some interesting discussions. Anyway, we got the free stuff out of the way. Jesus goes deeper, but I want you to see... And no matter who you interact with, and no matter what category somebody is from, 
Everybody is thirsting for something. I don't care if it's an atheist, an agnostic. I don't care. In prison, we got Wiccans. We got uh, Muslims. We have Jews. We have um, Native Americans. We have everybody. Everybody I talk to, I can always ask them this question. Are you satisfied with how your life is right now? Everybody's thirsting for something. We're going to find out what that root is. But everybody is thirsting no matter where they come from. And they are unsatisfied. Let's go to verse 11. But sir, she says, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Now it's interesting. When you went to draw water the same way in Kenya and Africa and other countries that I've been to, you bring your own rope. Nobody leaves a rope there because they'll steal it. When I went to buy cows, or calves, when I go buy cows and calves, I had to learn a a hard lesson. They had these cows on all these ropes and lead ropes and everything else. And when I bought the cow, all of a sudden they took the lead rope off and walked away. (laughs) And my cow's just wandering around. And I'm saying, what the heck's going on? And they tell me, you didn't buy the rope. (laughs) And I had to go back and buy the rope and pay them. Then you go back and put the rope on But think of the strength here of the burden of the women. 200 feet, water, eight, nine pounds a gallon. 200 feet, pulling that up, getting water. It was difficult, extremely difficult. And besides, who do you think you're greater than Uh, excuse me, and besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestors, Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and the animals enjoyed? Verse 13, and Jesus replied, anyone who drinks of this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And here all of a sudden she becomes awakened. She realizes something. Verse 15. Please, sir. When you look at that original, she's begging. It's just not being a politeness that's taking place here. She's really begging deep down inside. She's unsatisfied. Please, sir. Give me this water, then I'll never thirst again. And I will not have to come here to get water. It's amazing what it looks like when people awaken to Jesus. We go to the next slide. It's okay. Next slide will be a picture of a, uh, a tombstone of Jake Redman. When I was pastoring at Oak Christian Church, I had not been there very long, and there was a boy who was killed in a tragic accident. Jake Redman was an all-American wrestler. He was identified throughout the United States as an all-American wrestler. Broke all kinds of wrestling um, uh, records and, and, and won so many trophies. And he had a full-ride scholarship to the University of Missouri. He was going to wrestle there. The Redmonds were um, um, big farmers in the area. And I get this call about 4 o'clock in the morning. It's on a Sunday morning. And I get this call. And anytime a preacher gets a call and it's early in the morning, good things aren't happening. 
And one of the elders called and said that Jake had been killed in a car wreck. Him and his brother, his older brother, they went to a wedding. They were coming home from a wedding. The wedding was out in Kansas somewhere. They were driving back. It was late at night. There wasn't any drinking or anything going on. Um, Jake got tired, so he crawled in the back of the uh, the SUV, and he's laying down there, and his brother's driving, and his brother falls asleep, and he runs off the road. And as they flip, Jake is thrown from the vehicle into a fence. When I got the call, they knew there was a wreck because his brother had crawled, I believe he had a broken leg, crawled to the nearest house where he saw a light to get help. And they were out looking for his brother. When I got to the house, they finally found his brother. His dad came back in, and it was his dad who found his son. Heck, I didn't know what to say. Sometimes preachers get put in just the worst situations. You know, they were crying. I was crying. You know, I could relate to Jesus said, weep when they weep. You know, I was, I was devastated too. I, I just met him a few times. I was just so shocked because they were shocked. So later on, they did not attend our church and weren't attending church, but they called me back a couple days later, and because I had called on them, they asked if I would do the funeral. And, of course, I said yes real quick before I even thought about it. You know, you just kind of do that. Well, when we got to, I was really struggling about what in the world am I going to say? I, I don't know him that well. The community's devastated. When we had the viewing, it lasted for 10 hours. And I'm thinking right at that time, I finally talked to the family and the funeral director, and I said, we got to change the venue. If just a little amount of people come to the funeral, it, you know, we're not going to have enough room. So they decided to have it in the gym of the school. Over 1,200 people show up. That morning as I come in early, there was an individual, a lady comes walking up to me and says, Bruce, I need to talk to you before the funeral starts. So we go to the side and she introduced herself and she was an English teacher there at school. She says, I have something you need to read. And what it was, was a term paper that Jake had written about the Bible. That it just dawned on her, she hadn't read it. And she says, you need to read this. And as I read through this term paper, they's talking about the Bible and all the historical things and everything else. At the end, Jake had went to a summer camp, a Christian summer camp. Most people didn't know about. And when he went to the camp at the end, he's given his testimony. He's sharing his story about what happened at that camp and his life. And I thought, whoa, thank you, Jesus. Now I know what I'm supposed to do. I closed my Bible. I stuck my notes in my, you know, suit jacket. And I read the term paper. And there was other people who had talked and so on and so forth. You know, you've been to those funerals. There's times when people talk and there's just massive agony and wailing and tears and stuffing like stuff like that and then there's times where it gets real quiet and and I always notice that at funerals when it gets quiet usually somebody is giving a testimony or reading scripture the holy spirit's there 
the comforter's there. It's just not a fun story about somebody. But the Spirit shows up. And as and there was some kind of scuttlebutt noise. I mean, we're in a gym. It's summertime. The fans are running. It's noisy. You got metal bleachers and everything else. You got creaks and everything. When I got to the story, you could hear a pin drop in that whole gym. And I read the story. And I could feel that something was happening. I just closed with an amen. Didn't say anything. Didn't have any closing remarks. Didn't even really have a prayer. And I just invited everybody out to the grace site, which is right next to the school. So everybody walked out there. It was, it was quite a sight. Hundreds of people just walking down and up that hill up to the grave site. While we're there, we, you know, we, we have that committal and, and so on and so forth, but there's, there's something strange happening after it's over. Usually people will be respectful and maybe go through line and say something to the family and stuff like that, but they dissipate pretty quick. Well, the adults have, have all left, and there's hundreds of kids still gathered around in like little pockets and circles and stuff like that. And what was happening was, not only did they lose their friend and they were in grief, but they were considering what his story was about. And from talking with one group, it finally dawned on me what was happening. So I started grabbing people from the church. I said, you go to that group, you go to that group, you go to this group, you go to that group. And we just started talking with the kids. Hours later, we sat there talking about Jesus and Jake. And it was amazing how the youth groups in the area from the various churches, the Baptist church in town, we were outside of town, and the Methodist church and stuff, just grew exponentially because there was this awakening. You see, it doesn't make any difference where you come from, what your age is. Everybody's thirsty for something. Everybody is thirsty for something. As we go along, we're, we're down in verse uh, 16. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Her response is, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. She's not lying, technically, but she's just trying to move the conversation because it's uncomfortable. You know, we do this to people all the time, which is unfortunate. I mean, I've had it. We're in some small group, and there's a couple there, and I'll say, how many children do you have? Well, I didn't know she's been married three times and her children from three different families and so on and so forth, and it's uncomfortable. And, and she goes, oh, I have lots of children. Or you ask somebody, how long have you been married? Not knowing that that might be uncomfortable. But as Jesus is talking here, he says, sir, the woman, uh, verse, end of verse 17, sorry, Jesus said, you are right. You do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you are living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, it's interesting how this verse has been interpreted throughout history. Um, Ed Seitzer is the uh, editor of Christianity Today. He's a good friend of mine. 
I do a lot of stuff at Wheaton College. He's a professor up there and so on and so forth. And so I reached out to his research department. It's free. I mean, he's paying for it and stuff like that. So I reach out. It's interesting that in this passage, it, you know, we traditionally kind of think about that and we go, adultery, 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 slut, shacked up with somebody. I mean, our, our, we just kind of go there. We do that all the time with people in our community. We hear something about it and our mind goes somewhere before we even know the, tr- the whole story. And we start categorizing people. And as they did the research, they said it's possible, but absolutely not probable, that it was because of adultery. Because divorce was so prevalent. And when girls married, they married around 13 or 14 years old. They were actually promised from birth a lot of time. They still do that in Africa. It freaks me out. You know, not too long ago, we helped somebody, you know, purchase some cows for a dowry so that he could get married because he didn't have enough cows to give, you know, to the, to the father of the bride and so forth. It's just bizarre. But we even have instances, remember, Mary and Joseph. The first thing Joseph wants to do is get a divorce. Right? It's on everybody's mind. And then we see at the cross, Joseph's not there, and we assume something has happened to them. But more than likely, most of these girls would marry somebody extremely older than they were. And it's really probable that maybe her first, second, or third husband have all died. Very probable. Or he got frustrated because she couldn't bear children. Psst, divorce. Divorce. And it's even possible that the person she was living with was Roman because of the Samaritans there were intermarrying with Romans, that she was a concubine. That she's so desperate because all of her relationships have been broken and they failed that she needed somebody to take care of her. But either way, five relationships wasn't working and not even the ones that she's in now. But I want you to notice something. She has been objectified by six men. But she finally meets the seventh man. In scripture, seven is perfect. It's holy, it's complete. We created six days and we rested on the seventh day. It was a a day of completion, of wholeness. Now of a sudden... Of her broken relationships with six men, she finally meets a man who doesn't objectify her, who actually treats her. When we look at Jesus, he treats her with honor and respect. That's never happened to her before. What hasn't happened? Here's a man who's really interested in who she is. And that was Jesus. When we talk to others who are not followers of Jesus, it's important that we don't objectify them, that we just don't place them in categories, that we don't automatically make up our minds and judge them, but we treat them as equals, socially equal, or as Jesus would say, as a human being created in my image. That's tough sometimes. Because sometimes sin stinks and the situation is pretty bad. 
And it's hard to keep your mind focused. I know that how that is in, in prison ministry with inmates. I stopped reading their jackets. I stopped reading about all the things that they have done because it tainted how I interact with them. It was just horrible. I remember the first time it really kind of hit me home. I was visiting death row, and there's a woman on death row, and she came to the Lord, and I was talking to her and praying with her and everything else. She was in her late 20s and everything else, and we're leaving, and the guard says, Woo! I can't tell you what he said, but he referred to in a B word, and, and then he says, She's just faking. I can't believe you talked to her. You know what she did, don't you? And I said, oh, I don't know what she did. She said she, she took a light post and jammed it into her husband 86 times and then jammed it down his throat. And I thought, whew, I'm glad I didn't read that before I talked to her about Jesus. But we objectify people. We don't look at them as human because sin taints us and really kind of scars us and makes us look really ugly. And it's really difficult. We go to the next slide. We talk about objectifying people. The gal on the right is Tammy. The girl on the left is not my Tammy. It kind of looks like her, but it's, it's not her. But the girl on the right is Tammy. When we lived in um, Dayton, Ohio, a long time ago, um, Nathan was uh, junior high, and he came home, and he was telling about his best friend, Danny. And he wanted to know if he'd go stay at Danny's house on the weekend. Well, like all good parents... We don't let our kids stay somewhere unless we do a background check on the parents, right? Y'all been there? Done that? Well, the background check I did on her was amazing when it come back. Because she was a drug addict and a prostitute. So, we do what any good parent does. Well, if Danny's your friend, why don't you have him come stay at our house and play with us? So, that's what we did. Several months have gone by, and Danny had come over a few times. And um, Nathan comes home from school one day, and he says, uh, Danny hasn't been to, sc- to school in a couple days. And I asked the teacher about him. She says she didn't know anything about it. And he said, do you think we could call? And we didn't have her number. And so Nathan says, well, our bus goes right by his house. Why don't we stop over there and see Danny? So I thought... Well, I'm going with him, so it won't hurt or anything. So Tammy and I get in the car, and we go over to his house, and we knock on the door, and we don't hear anything. We don't hear anything. We knock on the door again, so we we hear the sound kind of in the back like somebody shouting. And so I tried the handle, and the door was open, so I opened the door to listen, and somebody is screaming in the the back. It's It's a double wide trailer screaming in the back. So I just walk in. You know me. I just walk in. I'm walking to the back. And I find Danny locked in a closet. Because mom had a cocaine habit, she would prostitute herself. And when men would come over so she'd get money, she would lock Danny in the closet while she was doing her thing. So we let Danny out of the closet, and um, we're talking to him and everything, and he doesn't know where his mom is, and da 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 Well, I knew that Tammy kind of hung out with this other guy, uh, a black guy by the name of Clarence, and kind of knew where they hung out and everything. So I wasn't there, but Tammy goes, talks to Clarence, and she comes home, 
And Tammy, my Tammy says, and you know my Tammy, no Miss Tammy hadn't done anything wrong in her whole life, never said a bad word, took a drink or nothing. She comes, says, Tammy is probably in Indianapolis, he says. That's where she goes and she has a pimp over there and that's probably where we'll find her. So I'm going to drive to Indianapolis and find her. And I said to my wife, no, you're not. (laughs) So my next statement was, you can't go. You don't even know where where to find a prostitute. (laughs) And you know what she said? She said, I'll just ask some people where they hang out. (laughs) Well, that flipped me out. I mean, I'm a risk taker, but for my wife, uh, so I come home. And the car's not there. And so I called Tammy on the phone, and I said, when are you coming home from work? She said, I'm on my way to Indianapolis. I said, no, you're not. She picked up Clarence. The other guy does drugs. Taking off to Indianapolis. I said, what's the plan? She says, we're going to stop at this certain gas station. We're going to ask where the prostitutes hang out. We think it's on 18th Street. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm flipping out. And she calls me later on. She finds Tammy sleeping in her car and brings her home. It's several months later. We never objectified her life. Never called her a slut. Never said she was a horrific um, parent for locking her child in a closet didn't demean her. What we wanted to do was give her Jesus. And Tammy started meeting with her. They'd have lunch together. And they would talk. She would take her out to eat. She's real skinny. and not very healthy. And they would talk and talk and so on and so forth. And then finally, she starts attending church with us. And finally, she's awakened spiritually. Because she's absolutely unsatisfied with how her life is. And the next picture is Tammy getting baptized out there in the river. Jesus had to go to Samaria because he had something that somebody needed. Now I want you to see this. There are people who are around you that you interact with every day who need something that you have. And you can help them awake spiritually. You can do that. Let's go on and read. We're going to start in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while the Samaritans claim that Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem, You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews, but the time is coming, and indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now this last part is very important of that verse. For the Father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. What is the root of our thirst in humanity? 
we always talk about this God-shaped hole that only God can fill, whatever. We have created in us because we are created in God's image. There is inside of us a thirst to worship something. Sometimes we have these ultimate things in our life and, and we've made our job our worship or we've made our children our worship or we've made this hobby our worship. And that has become the ultimate thing in our life. And Jesus says the ultimate thing in life is to worship God in spirit and truth. That is the root of all thirst that was taking place in her. Verse 25, and the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, we do this with Christians. I mean, Christians do this a lot. There's a problem that we can't fix, and there's things that are happening all around us, and we just flippantly throw out there, well, when Jesus gets here, he's going to take care of everything, and it'll be all right. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want, to, want us to wait until he gets back. He says the kingdom of God is here now. He wants us to be a part of the solution. We can't just put off and say, when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be okay. That's what she was trying to argue. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I'm it. I am here. And he goes on to say, just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask what are you doing? What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? And the woman left her water jug beside the well and ran back to the village. And there's a comma and says, telling everyone, or you have an and, or you have a period. And it says she went into the village. I want you to know there's a break right there. I want you to see what happened. Here's the woman. She's talking to Jesus. She's so impressed. She's intrigued. He's loving. He's compassionate. Then all of a sudden, the disciples show up. And they stand around and they're whispering. What the heck's he doing? You know what? There, there might be friends of yours, and this has happened a lot, that you're talking, your friend is talking with you and they respect you and your life and stuff and so forth. But all of a sudden, they meet your friends. And they're disappointed. The world says we look at Christianity as a bunch of hypocrites. They've been disappointed. I think she ran because she was tired of it. I don't want to deal with them. Why are they so different than him? I know there's a different interpretation on the video up there, but we're kind of open for interpretation here. So I'm not saying it does say it. The Lord, this is just Bruce's opinion time. But people have had so many bad experiences with Christians because of how they've been treated or judged. Let's go on verse 25. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything. And Jesus said, I am he. And let's drop down to da, 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 da. verse 31. And the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. 
You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are ripe unto for harvest. And the harvests are paid good wages. Once you think about that, there's all kinds of rewards for those who share the gospel in eternity. We're going to be blessed well. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are ripe for harvest, for the harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. But joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants, another harvests, and it is true. I sent you to harvest where you did not plant, and others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. And I've heard this scripture kind of uh, interpreted one way that... Um, you know, even sitting down, you shouldn't sit down and eat, that a good meal can get in the way of doing Jesus' ministry. You know, that, but that's not what he's trying to say. Jesus is saying, I get so much joy about talking about my Father and bringing those into the kingdom. I have so much joy, I forget about eating. It doesn't mean that much. I'm having so much fun. But notice she goes and she's sharing joy. Verse 39, the sharing of her joy. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in the village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior. I want to close with this last picture. Several years ago, I went to Cuba. I got a call from a friend who runs Mission Beyond Borders. And it's a mission who provides um, Christian resources and supplies in closed countries where Christianity is illegal. And he calls me on the phone and he said... Um, I had a guy lined up to take some stuff to Cuba, but he's backed out. And I, need, I need somebody to go to Cuba uh, to take some supplies to the underground church and those house churches. So you know me. I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, I don't pray about things that I can do. I think it's ridiculous. God asked Noah to build a boat and he didn't do it for him because he knew Noah could build the boat. We don't see anywhere Noah says he's praying about how, to, how long this board should be. He's praying how to keep it from sinking and all this other stuff. God has gifted us to do his work. We use prayers and excuse sometimes. Like I said, throwing out this fleece, we don't have to throw out a fleece because Gideon did it because he didn't have the Holy Spirit. When you have the Holy Spirit and God has gifted you, he has gifted you to work in his kingdom. You have a skill set. You don't have to think about something that you can do. You don't even have to pray about it. He wants you to be obedient. I'm not being flippant. I'm not being crazy. I'm not being reckless. I'm just telling you, when you go... When an opportunity opens, God provides everything, even when it doesn't look like it. So I asked him, I said, 
send the stuff. So he sends the stuff, and, and, uh, and UPS comes, and they're unloading box after box after box after box. When I got done, I got 24 suitcases full of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be obvious. <laughs> and so I had this guy who was going to go with me, and he came in, and so he's, he's doing the, you know, what people do. And he comes in, he says, Bruce, you're not being smart. We might be able to get two suitcases in, maybe four. Maybe we take three apiece, but there's no way we can take in 24. So my argument was, if Jesus can get in one suitcase, he can get in 24, right? That's what I said to him. He stomped out of my office. He was mad. He came back. And so Dan, who was an associate pastor at the time, we're sitting there, and we were just giving him grief. We didn't let him off the hook. And Dan says, are you afraid? Boy, you could see steam coming out of his ears. He was a big dude. He was a man. Ain't going to be afraid. So Dan tells him, why don't you just man up and go along? (laughs) That wouldn't have been the words I used, but that's what my associate said. (laughs) So he goes with me. And so I call my friend. I said, how do we get to Cuba? Because I couldn't get a visa. Every once in a while, they would might allow an educational visa. But that was extremely rare and hard to get to, and it limited what areas of the island you could go to. So I said, what do I do? He says, you go to Miami. You buy a plane ticket to Cuba. I said, you can do that without a visa or a passport? I didn't even have a passport. He says, yeah, you don't need a passport to get into Cuba. I learned you really need one to get back to the United States, though. But I sure didn't need one to get to Cuba. I showed my driver's license, and it's like the the Cuban mafia. So you go there, and there's a completely different terminal. There's two flights a day that go to Cuba, three days a week at the Miami airport. And and so you go there, and you're shuttled to this separate terminal, and you go in there, and you buy your ticket. But here's the catch. Everything is cash. Everything is cash. And so I had all those suitcases, and they weighed all my suitcases, and they were charging me $3 a pound. Needless to say, I didn't have enough cash on me. I go back. I go back to the other terminal. I'm calling Tammy. I'm calling the elders of the church and everything else, and I said, I need some cash. I go to, you know, these, these uh, ATMs will only allow you to take out so much money. I went to five different ATMs to get enough money just to get into the country and get my stuff paid for. I got everything set up. We're waiting in the terminal, and our airline has been, our flight has been delayed twice. I'm getting a little nervous, a little frustrated, because my friend had set up, there was an individual that I was supposed to meet, and everything was in code. So I might say, I'm going to come, instead of saying January, January was Genesis, Exodus was February. March, Leviticus, and so forth. And so we would say, in code, do you like the scripture of Genesis 3 and certain, certain verses throw, to know how many days we were going to be there? And if it was okay, he would say, yeah, I like that verse. Or he'd say, no, I don't like that verse. I like Exodus 10, 17. And so we're all set up in code. You know, I'm thinking, boy, I'm really cool. And so the plane finally shows up, and we land in, into the city in Havana. And as we land, we come in, 
and they're unloading our suitcases. And so we have to go through security. We have to go through four security lines. And so I get jammed up at the first one. My friend, I just laughed about, I shouldn't have. They grabbed him and, and took him in, and they were giving him the riot act. I mean, we were the only Grinkos in, in the whole place. We stood out like crazy. And they were interrogating him for almost three hours, and they finally let him go. And I finally made it to the, the second uh, checkpoint, and I'm there, and I got my backpack. It's full of all kinds. I had over 100 thumb drives with all kinds of Christian resources and Hispanic commentaries and all this stuff. And um, I get stopped. I keep trying to convince him that my iPads that I brought along were just Game Boys, but they weren't buying that. They knew a little more than I thought they did. So what you do is you play dumb. You just play dumb. I'm just telling you, if you get in a spot, just play dumb. You just don't understand what's going on. And then you do the next thing. You reach in your pocket where you, where you got a $50 bill or a $100 bill, and you just start pulling it out. You're not saying you're going to bribe them. You're just showing them that you got cash. And that's worked a lot of times in a lot of different countries. Or they'll grab it out of your hand, and then they just let you go. I made it to the third checkpoint, and I get jammed up because they brought all 24 of my suitcases over. My friend's going, <laughs> I know what he's saying. I'm sure I didn't want to hear what he's saying, but anyway, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, this person walks up behind me and grabs me on the shoulder. It's a woman, and she leans down and whispers in my ear, God gave me a vision today and told me to come to work. I wasn't supposed to work today, but I'll help you get through the checkpoints. She was a captain. And we started walking away. She says, just do what I tell you to do. And she went to work, and she threw her rank around and was just pointing to people and got people to carry my suitcases and, and put them on skids and rollers and everything else and got us through all the checkpoints, and we go outside, and she's crying. And she said, what did you bring my country? And so I started to tell her. And I said, because I didn't have a plan, God said go. The person I was supposed to meet didn't show up. And so you just can't travel around in Cuba because there are three different colored license plates. And if you're visiting, you're only allowed into the red license plate. If it's black, it's, it's the government communist government. If it's yellow, it's the people of Cuba. If it's red, it's a tourist. And they're only allowed to one part of the island where there's a few, you know, hotels and stuff like that. And I said, um, I brought all this stuff. What do I do with it? I said, how do I find Christians? And she goes, oh, it'll be real easy. And she goes, when they shut all the electricity down about four o'clock, when it starts to get dark, so she lined me up with this guy that was going to take me around. And every time we saw soldiers, we were just ducking the bottom of the car so they wouldn't see us in there. And she says, when they turn out the lights, look for lights. She goes, those will be lamps of the Christians who have gathered together. And if you see a light and you're unfor sure, stop the car and turn it off and listen for singing. Because if they're singing, you know it's a church. So I spent the week going around, turning off the car, looking for lights, listening to the singing. 
One of the house churches that we came up to was there. They are so excited about sharing their story about Jesus. And in these pictures up here is one day with one house church. You could only get about maybe 20 people in there. But some way they were able to communicate. They didn't have cell phones and stuff like that. People would come in at night and so on and so forth, and people would leave, and they just scatter, and, I, and they were communicating. But they said, we're going to go to the edge of the village, the edge of the south edge of Havana, where the national forest starts, and we're going to go there, and we're going to witness to people. When I get to the road that where we're meeting at, this is how many people showed up to witness. To share their story. In the face of communism. Because if you got caught, they had to be careful. They had people look out when they met to see if anybody was driving by or soldiers were coming or vice versa. But it wouldn't come to sharing with somebody about what God had done in their life. They showed up in a big way. You know, I can probably get Getting volunteers in church is hard to do sometimes. Get people to volunteer to work with youth, volunteer to this or that, and you'll get a few people, and you have a sign-up sheet. The worst thing they ever came up with for a preacher was a sign-up sheet because no one ever signs up. It just doesn't happen. But, you know, I might be able to get a lot of people to sign up if I'm going on an abortion walk, and a lot of people will sign up, or vice versa. It'll be a lot less if we're having a prayer service, a lot less people sign up. If I'm saying we're going to go into an area of town, and we're going to knock on doors and tell people our story and talk to them about Jesus, we won't get anybody to show up. But I've never had a door slammed in my face. Some of you here went with me to Houston. Did we have a door ever slammed in our face? Not one. People are begging us to pray for them. Begging us. You have something that somebody needs. And you can bring about a spiritual awakening so they can feel and be satisfied that thirst to worship a God who loves them, who doesn't judge them, and can make them whole. And they'll be joyful. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for tonight, for your love and compassion. And and God, I'm so thankful that the church body reached out to me and loved me and all the the hang-ups that I have. Father, I'm thankful for joy. Father, give me the boldness and the courage to tell others my story so that their life can be made whole too. In Jesus' name, amen.